So the first verse that I'm reading from is Luke 17, verse 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said to them, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So now turn to 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and high in favour, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valour, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought a letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he was seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? 
So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let me just pray before JR comes up. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that we have the privilege of being able to hear this freely. God, please soften our hearts, humble us before you, and change us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. Well, nobody wants to be sick, right? Nobody likes being sick. Nobody especially wants to be the kind of sick that leads to death, a a serious sick. Think about it, right? In our world today, there are billions and billions of dollars being poured into research of vaccine development for COVID-19. There are also extreme lockdowns happening in the rest of our country and uh, also in Darwin when we discover one case of COVID. All of that is, is motivated by, is fueled by, isn't it, a concern about sickness. Now, kids, uh, you're, you're in here this morning, obviously, because uh, we, we've, as we do every few weeks with Praise Factor, we have a break, so you're uh, um, hanging out with us today. I want to ask you guys, do any of you like being sick? Anyone? No. <laughs> that is a solid answer, and I think, who was that? Was that, was that Connor? Yeah, you speak for the rest of us, Connor. That's right. Nobody likes being sick. And so the question is, well, how do you cure your sickness? Our passage this morning answers that question, and perhaps in more ways than you might have initially thought. And so this morning I have four points for you, and so with our Bibles open, let's dive right into them with our hearts ready to hear God's Word this morning. Well, our passage opens by introducing a new character in the book of 2 Kings, and that is Naaman. Well, in America, his name is pronounced as Naaman, they also say Baal. Um, uh, but I've been told that if you're going to say Baal, as we do, then you should also say Naaman. Uh, so I'm going to say Naaman from here on in. Hopefully that's not too much of a distraction for you. <laughs> we have Naaman. Here he is. He's a commander of the army um, of the king of Syria. And he is a great man. And the Hebrew word for great there in our passage is the same Hebrew word that you might remember a couple of weeks ago was used to describe the Shunammite woman in chapter 4. She described her as wealthy. And here also the, the word Aram has been translated as Syria, which gives us an idea of where this land would have been, uh, roughly in modern day Syria. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the king and the commander of the army, they were two of the most powerful positions in the ancient world. So this guy, Naaman, he is a pretty serious top dog. And not only that, uh, but he was also in favor with his master, the king. So not only was he a top dog, he was also liked by the top dog. 
And yet, what's amazing also is that uh, the reason the Bible gives for his high favor is this. Because by him the Lord had given him victory to Syria. Here is yet another example in Scripture of how the Bible uh, always says that the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is the only true God. And that while the gods of surrounding nations might be uh, gods over certain parts of creation or over certain people, the Lord... He is God over the whole world and over all people. And perhaps we'll see in a moment, even over a victory that was over his own people, Israel. Naaman was a mighty man of valor. That was a phrase used in the Bible a few times to describe great warriors. But, and here in the narrative is a significant but, he was a leper. Leprosy, uh, as you might be aware, is a very severe, serious skin disease, and that is what we today would call Hansen's disease. Uh, And in uh, our translation here, we're we're not actually sure if it's specifically referring to that disease or or another serious skin disease, but either way, because the ESV translates it this way, I will keep referring to it as leprosy. And whether Naaman got it before or after he had military success, we, we don't know. But what we do know is that it was serious and public enough that he was willing to go to great lengths to get it cured. Let's read from verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. You know, it's quite possible that Naaman's victory that's referred to was won over the Israelites themselves, this very victory that he's referring to. And that's why this little girl from Israel is now in service of Naaman's wife. And she's been carried off to a foreign land. Now, you... Just stop for a minute and think about this. We don't know much about this little girl. We don't know her name. We know that she's little. We know that she's a girl. But the only other things we know about her and the only time we hear from her in the entire Bible is in this couple of verses that I've just read. And yet, this little girl accomplished a great thing. God. Can you imagine being a little girl who's been wrenched away from your family and from your home and from your home country and carried off to a foreign land to be in service of of a high commander and his wife? Can you imagine being a little girl who's been in that situation and, and that's happened to you because your country lost the battle? What would your attitude be in such circumstances? I'm sure for most of us, we would, we would hope that we would serve our masters as though we were serving the Lord, as 1 Corinthians 7 says. But I'm sure you can imagine how extremely difficult it would be to be in that situation. And yet, this little girl, despite how awful her life was turning out to be, still had faith in the Lord her God that there was a prophet in her homeland who would be able to heal Naaman. 
And not only that, she even cared for him enough to tell him. Think about it like this. Without this little girl, without her faith, we wouldn't be reading this story. Without this little girl, without her faith, her obedience to the Lord, we wouldn't even know about Naaman. And Jesus wouldn't, even, wouldn't have talked about him in Luke 4.27. Brothers and sisters, how often do we lament our insignificance as though what mattered most in life was whether people are going to remember us when we die? Live your life knowing that the Lord sees your faithfulness in wherever He has placed you, and that is what He's called you to. Whatever that translates to in real-world terms, whether your name is going to be written in the annals of history and be remembered by generations long after you're gone, let your goal be, above all things, to hear the Lord say on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant. And kids, as this little girl shows, we have some of our own little girls in our church. You're not too young to serve God. You're not too young to be faithful to Him in where He has placed you. Turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, and know that you don't have to wait until you're an adult to be able to serve Him. Well, we read in uh, verses 4 to 5 in 2 Kings 5 that Naaman receives the message from his wife and passes that on to the king. And the king, who obviously had a high regard for Naaman, he willingly sends him away with a letter to go and to see the king of Israel, hoping for a cure for his leprosy. And that brings us to the second point, a great cure. A great cure. Naaman goes, as we see in verse 5, with a whole lot of coin. I remember one time when my father-in-law was having back problems. You know, he said, all I want to do is just walk into a place and pay $500 and come out with a fixed back. Uh, personally, I was quite surprised that he set the price so low. <laughs> when I asked him if I could share that story, he said, yeah, I guess I didn't have as much money back then. <laughs> I'm sure you're probably aware of people who have gone to extraordinary lengths and paid extraordinary prices to have sicknesses be cured. Well, Naaman and his silver, gold and clothing here was the equivalent of a lot of money. A lot. I can't give you an exact amount in Australian dollars, but to give you an idea of how much, we read in 1 Kings 16.24 that King Omri brought a plot, bought a plot of land for the site of Samaria for two talents of silver alone. Naaman is bringing 10 talents of silver plus 6,000 shekels of gold and he's changed his clothing. Right? That gives you an idea that Naaman is packing a lot of coin in his camels. Right. 
And so he brings uh, his letter from the Syrian king to the king of Israel, which reads, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, you know, we actually have records of other letters of this kind in the ancient world from around this time, around the same place. And so we know that this was actually not an uncommon thing to do. Uh, Obviously, there was also some kind of truce here between Israel and Syria. Uh, The fact that the king was sending his commander-in-chief to do something other than wage war on Israel. So there's some kind of peace going on. But, as we see from his response, uh, the king of Syria has forgotten to mention a rather important detail in his letter. And whether he has done that intentionally or whether he's just, you know, he just forgot... Um, that there was a prophet in Samaria to whom he was told about, um, the king of Israel kind of reacts to that. That's because, obviously, the, the truce between them is, is not... Still, it's still a little bit tense. Still a little bit tense. Let's read how the king of Israel responds in verse 7. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Incredibly, even though Israel at this time was so far from God, the king actually, he recognizes something that is true. Only God has the power of life and death. Uh, We see this thematically throughout the Bible and explicitly with similar language in places like 1 Samuel 2.6 and Deuteronomy 32.39. God explicitly talks about that fact. But, you know, perhaps tellingly, the king actually uses the word, uh, the general word for God in our passage instead of the Lord's specific name, Yahweh, which, of course, as we have in our Bibles, is, is recognized in the capital Lord letters. And we saw that before with Ahab's prophets in 1 Kings 22. And so the king recognizes a truth about God, but he also thinks that this is, a, this is a power move by the king of Syria to incite some kind of war between them. You know, he's, he's thinking to himself, I can't heal Naaman. I don't have that kind of power. He's, he's obviously trying to pick a fight so that when I send him back unhealed, he can go, well, you didn't do it, so we're coming after you. That's why he he tears his clothes in great distress and in sorrow, thinking that, man, we're on the verge verge of another war. Well, Elisha, who seems to have a direct line with the king, which again we saw with the Shunammite woman a couple of weeks ago, and we'll see in, in the chapters coming up, he catches wind of the king's response. There in verse 8, and he rebukes the king and tells him, seriously? How can a little girl in a foreign land know about what the Lord has done through me, but you haven't? Yet again, another sign of of how far from the Lord the king is. And Elisha's next words here, I think, are astounding. Given what we know about Naaman, given what we know about what seems to be his greatest need, about what seems to be his most significant problem, what would you expect Elisha to say in this moment? Seems obvious, doesn't it? Let him come now to me that he may be, what? 
cured of his leprosy. But that's not what he says. Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Whatever it is that Elisha thinks he's going to be able to do for Naaman, his stated purpose for that action is that Naaman may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, of course, a prophet's role is to speak for God and to point people to him. So the end goal is not, is not Elisha's greatness or his fame. It's not so that Naaman will be able to talk about how great Elisha is, but that he would know how great the Lord is. And that will become even clearer to us next week when we look at verse 15. Do you see the point? Over and over in the Bible and in Jesus' ministry, it's exactly the same. The purpose of signs, miracles, and wonders isn't so that people can come away with restored skin or a fixed back or an extra few years to live in life. The purpose is so that people will know the Lord. That's the point and the wonder of Luke 17, which we read earlier. Ten lepers are healed, and yet only one comes back and recognizes who Jesus is. And he's a Samaritan of all people, a foreigner, yet another foreigner, who recognizes Jesus as Lord. God saves the unlikeliest people in the unlikeliest places. And he did it with the Samaritan leper in Luke 17. And he did it with this Syrian leper in 2 Kings 5. Now, there are some well-meaning Christians out there, many of whom I would count as friends, who sadly get this totally upside down. They would say that unless you can prove to people that God is real in some kind of supernatural way, then we don't actually have a great message to share. Now, I'm not going to go down a long rabbit hole right now about how much God does miracles like this today, where He might supernaturally cure a sickness. I have no problem with God doing something that defies what we would consider to be the natural order of things today. I have no issues believing that God does that. But if your focus has shifted from God to the miracle, or if your hope in trying to get people to look to God is in some kind of miracle like this, then you've missed the point. Now, for most of us here this morning, that that probably isn't going to be a great temptation, but it does tap into something that is worth us considering. When you seek to point people to God and seek to evangelize and share the gospel with others, what's your angle? Do you find yourself uh, trying to sell the benefits of God? rather than pointing people to God? Talking about, you know, marriages that stay together or kids that are well-behaved? Because, of course, you know, that's a guarantee, right? 
or good, or good morals to live by? Is your goal to help people have a better life because you know that life is better with Jesus? Or is your goal to help them see that there is a God, that He is real, and that He calls all people to turn from their sin and believe in Him? Of course, it's not wrong to talk about all those great things. They are true, except maybe the kid bit. (laughs) They are true things. But we must never forget that ultimately our principal task hasn't changed much. We want people to know that there is a God, that He is sovereign over all things, and that eternal life comes to us by His grace through faith in Jesus. Well, Naaman receives the message and he rocks up to Elisha's door with his entourage of horses and chariots, of course, indicating uh, his great might. And interestingly, Elisha uh, has a house now. We don't know how or why, but he does. And before Naaman even has a chance to dismount and welcome himself inside, Elisha sends a messenger out to him. You wanted a cure for your leprosy, Naaman? Here it is. I'm not even going to tell it to you in person. Go and wash in our very average Jordan River seven times and your flesh shall be restored, your leprosy will be banished and you'll be ceremonially ceremonially clean. Well, this great commander, he certainly wasn't expecting that, was he? All his horses and chariots and his pomp. Who does this prophet think he's talking to? You can't just send out a messenger and talk to me. Can you imagine if the prime minister rocked up on your doorstep and you just told him to get off your lawn? Oh, hang on a second. That, this is Australia. That did happen here. Which is totally the kind of thing you'd expect from Australians, right? Well, even despite that, the point is, As Australians, we understand these ideas of greatness. We understand these ideas of higher and lower levels of importance in society, don't we? We just don't like them. That's one of the reasons why we have, all of us, tall poppy syndrome. We don't like it when somebody gets too big-headed or starts to think they're so great because of all their great and wonderful achievements, and so we, we, we slice them down. Bring them back down to our level. And that can be a good thing because pride is a sin. And hey, that can be a very destructive form of it. But the flip side of this is that we are also at just as much risk of pride when we're the short puppy, aren't we? I mean, don't we often cut people down because actually we're too proud to be able to rejoice in and to be able to celebrate with somebody who has achieved great and wonderful things? Isn't that oftentimes our motivation? You see, regardless of how it might be expressed in your life, regardless of what it might look like, whether it's 
tall puppy or slicing puppy. You cannot escape this one fact. You are proud. And if your immediate response to that was, no, I'm not, then you've just proven my point. As Tim Keller said uh, recently, we are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't think we are. That's because pride lies at the heart of our sin. And that brings me to my third point. Your great sickness. Satan's first temptation for humanity was that of pride. As we read about in Genesis 3, 5, you will be like God, he promised Adam and Eve. And so it has been for ages and generations that humanity has reveled in its sin and thought ourselves to be wiser than God, to be better than God, and to be holier than God. That pride is on display in Naaman as he responds to the Lord's instruction given through Elisha. Let's read it from verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He is clearly angry. He is in a rage. And why is he angry? Because he wanted God to treat him the way that he thought he deserved to be treated. His whole spiel here smacks of pride and high society life, doesn't it? The the NRSV brings this out uh, even more by showing the emphasis on Naaman himself. I thought that for me, he would surely come out. I'm not going to go down to your lowly, dirty river to be clean. I'd probably come out dirtier than when I went in. Where's where's the grandiose gesture? Where's the impressive wave of the hand that's going to, to magically get rid of the problem? He's angry because God is treating him on God's terms, not on his. Even though Naaman had a sickness, a very evident, a very visible, a very debilitating and serious sickness on the surface, he suffered from a deeper sickness in his soul. It was a sickness of his sinful pride. Maybe you don't fly off the handle like Naaman did. Or maybe you do. But you can sympathize. You can relate to that response, can't you? 
how often do you say either about God or directly to God, I thought that he would surely fill in the blank. I thought that he would surely heal my dad. Doesn't he want that as well? I thought that he would surely welcome all people into his kingdom as they are and not expect them to change who they are. Isn't he a God of love? Isn't that what that means? I thought, God, that you would surely give me the kind of life in all its fullness that Jesus promises in the Gospels, the kind of fullness that, that, that I think is full and great. I thought, God, that you would surely respect all of my good works, all the great things I've done, and assess me based on my own merits. That is surely the fair way to go, right? The proud and the sinful response is always the one that puts ourselves above God. Always. It's the response that thinks we will, you know what? I'll find a cure for my sin sickness somewhere else if I don't like what you have to say, God. I'm going to go look for it. In, in, I'm going to find peace in Eastern mysticism. I'm, I'm going to find happiness in positive psychology. I'm going to find love in the arms of a lover. I'm going to find satisfaction in my earthly achievements, in my great things that I've done. I'm going to find salvation without grace. I'm going to find words from God that have no basis in your actual word. Where are you looking to find a cure for your sin sickness? Have you turned to what God says in His word? Or would you rather find that cure elsewhere? Surely this is why Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3 that people and churches would reject sound teaching and instead gather around them teachers that would tell them what they want to hear, that would tickle their itching ears. When we think that we can improve on what God has said, when we think that we can have better ideas than him, that we are much wiser than who he is, rather than seeking to understand God's word, rather than seeking to live by it, then we are responding in precisely the same way that Naaman did. Will the realization of your sin, sickness, cause you to humble yourself before God and seek His cure? Will you humble yourself before God and seek His cure? Or will it cause you to storm away from Him 
in a rage, thinking that you know better. Friends, don't, don't let your sickness drive you to the rivers of Abana and Fapa, which might look great, which might seem fresher and cleaner and seem to promise more than what God does. Because the most pristine waters in the world can only clean your skin. They cannot clean your sin. And in the same way, everything else on offer in this world to help you find real hope, to find healing in this world, they will never give you a lasting cure. We need to humbly turn to the one who can. And that brings us to our final point. I'm sorry, that's meant to say your great cure. Your great cure is point number four. You cannot be cured of your sin sickness without humility. Martin Luther apparently said, although I couldn't find the original, in the presence of God, everyone must duck his head and come into the joy of forgiveness only through the low door of humility. Thankfully, Naaman had some servants who had some sense. They implore him to listen to Elisha's instruction and to do it. Notice the contrast here. This is uh, a great word for a so-called great man who thought that actually this word wasn't great at all. And you know, the obvious affection that these servants have for him by calling him father is also shown in their prodding him to seriously reconsider the word of the Lord that he has just rejected. We all need people like this in our lives. Those that will gently meet our proud rejection of God's word with a prod of love to look at it again, to reconsider your response. Do you have a tender love for your brothers and sisters in Christ that seeks their sanctification by imploring them to take another look at Scripture and to take another look at their lives? Do you love them that much? And are you ready to receive that? Are you ready to receive that that gentle prodding, that, that loving correction, even when it comes from the unlikeliest of places? Parents, when your kids speak truth to you in accordance with God's word, that rebuke your sin. Do you receive that with humility? Whatever happens between verses 13 and 14, we see a shift in Naaman. And let's read verse 14. 
So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The great man humbled himself before God's word, went down to the Jordan, dipped himself in it seven times, the number seven, once again, signifying wholeness and completeness. And what happened? Well, exactly what Elisha said would happen. He was restored and clean. Naaman wasn't just healed of his leprosy. He was made clean. He was made ceremonially, ceremonially clean, that's for sure. Leviticus 13 gives clear instructions on what to do with leprous people and how they can become ceremonially clean. For him to be cured of his leprosy meant he was no longer in that category. But this cure for his leprosy seems to point to a different kind of cleaning that has gone on in Naaman's heart. And that is, he's been humbled. We'll see next week exactly what that looks like, but uh, I think the intentional wording in this verse gives us enough of an indication. Here is the great Naaman who thought that Elisha's great instructions weren't actually enough to match his self-perceived greatness. And now here he is, having humbled himself and submitted himself to that great word, and he has the flesh of what? A little child. Of course, that means that it is smooth and free of leprosy. That's certainly what is being communicated there. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, the Bible often uses intentional language to draw your attention to certain things. And I'm not the first person to think that describing Naaman's flesh as like that of a little child isn't coincidental at all. The grand irony in this whole story is that even though Naaman was introduced in our passage as a great commander who owned a little servant girl, and of course, in our, in our world today, we would think that surely the path to freedom and the path to greatness for the little girl would be to become like him, right? For him to, to have achieve great things and to receive recognition for it. And yet, in the end, the grand irony of the whole story is that it was the little servant girl who held the key to Naaman's cure. for both his skin sickness and his sin sickness. And the cure would be a marvelous reversal. It would result in the great one becoming like the little one, both in the flesh and in his heart. The cure for Naaman's skin and sickness would come through humbling himself before God and responding to his word and coming to him like a little child. 
Does that sound familiar? In Matthew 18, 3 to 4, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you're here this morning and you still think that your ways and your wisdom are better than God's, then let me gently implore you the same way Naaman's servants did to him. This is a great word that is worth laying aside your pride for. It is worth condescending yourself to below what you think is appropriate for your status. Each of us is born with a sin sickness that makes us think that we're better off without God. Our sinful pride makes us think that we know better than God. That we can find a cure for our problems in in Enneagrams and personality tests and careers and whatnot. But the Word of God is that there is no other cure than that which comes through faith in Christ. It is only when we lay aside our sin and we lay aside our pride and humble ourselves and come to Jesus with childlike faith, with the kind of faith that says, Jesus, I am totally dependent on you and on nothing else. I cannot save myself. I cannot enter the kingdom of heaven through my great adult achievements, through my wonderful morality, through my obedience to your laws. It is only through faith in you. It is only when we come to Jesus like that that we may find the cure for our sin. If you have not done that today, then I would love nothing more than to talk to you about that. And brothers and sisters, how are you going in your humbling? Look around at our kids this morning. Go on. Jesus said that we must become like them. He's not referring to neglecting growth in your faith or suggesting that you act immaturely. He's not suggesting that you try and reject complex thought, which, by the way, children are far more capable of than you sometimes give them credit for. No, he's saying, do you see how a child fulsomely trusts a loving and a caring parent? Do you see how they gladly run into the arms of a father who loves them? Do you see how they come to him without any doubt of his goodness, without stubbornly thinking that they know better than him? Sin notwithstanding. That is how our approach ought to be with our Heavenly Father. It is those who continue to humble themselves before Him that are deemed great in His kingdom. 
It is those who continue to surrender their lives to the sanctifying work of the Spirit and His will that find greater joy, ever greater, in knowing Christ. And it is those who have a deep trust in the Word of God that continue to go out into the world and to tell anyone who will hear, even those we don't like, even those who have done us wrong, even those whom we think deserve nothing but our bitter resentment, like perhaps we would think this little girl ought to have towards Naaman, who will tell that there is a God whose son came out from the people of Israel and who lived a life free of pride and without sin and who took our sin upon himself on a Roman cross so that through faith in Jesus we might be cured of our sin sickness and be washed clean in his sight. That childlike faith results in a wholehearted trust, a wholehearted devotion by the grace of God as his spirit continues to work powerfully within us. And you know what? All of Jesus' miracles that he performed on earth, they weren't just to bring pain relief to people temporarily here. They pointed forward to the day when he would finally do away with pain, when what he began on earth would be completed in the new creation, where death will be no more, where pain will be no more, and where sorrow will be no more, as Revelation 21.4 tells us. The childlike faith we have in God isn't just for now, but it is forever. Brother, sister, are you continually humbling yourself before Him? Are you humbling yourself before His Word in submission to it? seeking the Holy Spirit's work in your life by His grace. I want to finish by sharing with you a story that Josh shared with me this week. He said that uh, years ago, he used to get angry and frustrated with God because for a long time, he prayed that God would heal him of his deafness. And he couldn't understand why God wouldn't do it. He'd wonder, God, I thought that you would surely heal me of this because you're good. Isn't that what you want? And over the years, he's continued to grow in his understanding of who God is, in God's sovereignty, of the fact that his word never promises physical healing in this life, but that what he does promise is sufficient grace in this life. And as he read passages like John 9 and Jesus' response to the man who was born blind, as well as 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul prays for his thorn in his flesh to be removed, but God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Such passages helped him grow in that. And so as he's kept reading the Word, as he's kept growing in his understanding of who God is, and as he's kept talking with brothers and sisters in Christ, He's come to realize that the cure that he most desperately needs 
is not the one for the here and now, but the one for his sin sickness. And so he presses on by the grace of God in humbly submitting to God's word and seeking to kill his sin and to know contentment in Christ. Whether or not God chooses to heal his deafness in this life or in the next. Friends, that's what it looks like. That is what it looks like to recognize that your deepest sickness is your sin. And that your great cure is humbling yourself, repenting of your pride, and coming to Christ through faith, trusting His Word, and continuing to submit to it in obedience. By God's grace, that is our striving in the here and now. As we look forward to the day when God will finally cure our sickness as well as all of creation's sickness. And so the question is, will you humbly go to him for the cure? Or will you proudly go everywhere else instead? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your word this morning. We recognize that, like Naaman, we are proud before you. And yet, Lord, that is not where we want to stay. And so we ask in your mercy, by your Spirit, Humble us, teach us, mold us, and shape us. By your word, through your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.